Hey everybody, before we get going, I want to take a minute to let you know about some of the stuff we have coming up over the next few weeks and months. Because we've been doing a lot of conversational episodes recently. It's been a while since we've had the kind of long reported stories that we launched this podcast with. So today, we're going to play one of those early stories. And then over the rest of the summer, we're going to take you places. We're going to go to Indonesia for a survival story that spans more than 40 years. And then we're coming back home for a multi-part series on wildfires that I guarantee you is going to go places you don't expect it to go. Then this fall, we're launching another multi-part series that's probably the most ambitious project we've ever done. And I can't really say more than that about it yet. So while you're waiting for those stories, I want to tell you about another show that you'll probably enjoy from the magazine Mother Jones. The Mother Jones podcast looks at each week of news and dives in to help explain what's most important and why. Sometimes they'll take you inside the headlines and give you the story behind Trump's travel ban, or they might introduce their latest investigative project, like the one on the scandalous tactics a pharmaceutical company is using to push doctors to prescribe opioids. So if you like good audio and you care about what's going on in the world, check out Mother Jones and enjoy today's show. It's truly one of our favorite episodes. From PRX and Outside Magazine, this is the science of survival. Okay, the storm was an unusual one in that it involved um, really hard-blown sleet. Phil Broskovic's story begins on the side of a cliff in Colorado, 1,600 feet above the Gunnison River. He and Joe Callahan are asleep on a hanging platform they assembled on the wall. They're five nights into a six-day climb. Joe and I did an, one of the earliest ascents of a route uh, in the Black Canyon of the Gunnison, which was considered the hardest wall in America at the time. It was 1990. Phil was 32 and at the peak of his abilities but not for all that much longer. So we went down there, and for five days, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. It was beautiful temperatures. And uh, at about four in the morning, life took a different turn, and I woke up to the worst storm I've ever seen. And I w- we were in the middle of it. And we waited for the dawn in terror, and there was nothing to do but climb. You're climbing for your life. You're not climbing because it's fun. You've got to get off of this thing. Anybody who's ever been around a lightning strike on the mountain, you can hear the charge build. You can hear the crackling. You can hear the buzzing build up. And it was deafening. I was buzzing. I was humming. My entire, you know, everything was just... um, you know, just, but, and then it discharged this bolt. And I mean, this bolt uh, hit the river, hit the river 1,600 feet below us. And I mean, it's like, if it does that, why didn't it take me out at that time? Why didn't it take us both out? How do you, how do you make sense of that? Really close calls are all basically the same. It starts with wide-eyed dread as you recognize the danger. 
then panicky, stuttering heartbeats and some decisive moment that crawls by in slow motion, giving you time to ponder the circumstances of your death. Then the shit-eating grin as you make it and realize that you're okay. You're alive and life is good. This is Phil at the top of the climb. I led the last pitch out and I'm really not a human being at that point. I'm more of like a grizzly bear. I'm just groveling up this thing, hands and knees and elbows and teeth and everything, and I get to the railing and I just start going a little berserk. I, I sounded like a longshoreman on steroids. I, was, I came up with cuss words nobody ever heard. I grab handfuls of the loamy earth and I rub it all over my face. I throw it in the air. I grovel my hands and my shoulders. And now I've always had this fantasy of doing some spectacular climb and meeting like a supermodel and having an affair. And I get there and I'm groveling and I hear a giggle. <laughs> and there's this beautiful woman. And I ask her, I said, how long have you been there? And she said, long, long enough. enough. <laughs> and it was like... Hey everybody, this is the Outside Podcast. I'm Peter Frickwright. And today's story is about Phil Broskovic and his relationship with lightning. You're going to hear from me, from producer Robbie Carver, and you've already heard from Phil. Although, I should point out right at the top here that this is a story that was really difficult for him to tell. Before he said yes to an interview, he kind of had to do some math and figure out whether the difficulty of telling the story was worth the good it might do if it helped someone else. And it turned out that it was, because to him, most lightning stories kind of miss the point. If you start looking around, most lightning stories are about really incredible, abnormal situations. People getting struck six or seven times. Or lightning survivors who also won the lottery. Or they're the stories of people who credit lightning with all sorts of comic book stuff. A man in England said being struck gave him the ability to read minds. Others report super sensitive hearing or other powers. There are a lot of these stories. The most famous one probably being the guy who was struck and could soon after play the piano. He even composed a lightning sonata. Based on the way we talk about it and the stories we tell, it's almost like to be struck is to be chosen in some way. But this isn't a story about superpowers. It's about Phil and what life is really like after being struck. If it were one of those other unbelievable stories, Phil's close call would have led to an affair with a woman at the top of the climb. But that's not actually how lightning, or life, works. He never saw the woman again. In fact, shortly after that, Phil's climbing days came to an end. Complications from a knee injury led to total knee replacement surgery. He was one of the youngest recipients ever. And as he was recovering, he moved in with Julia Hallaby. I think he fell in love with being a father. I think I fell in love with him as a father. Julia was a friend from college. Maybe a little bit more than a friend. I guess the term they use now is friends of benefits, but we didn't say it back then. It was just an element of the relationship that occurred. She'd recently gotten pregnant, but had no interest in raising a kid with a biological father. Meanwhile, Phil had been grounded by his doctor, so he moved in just to help with the baby. Being human beings with a baby around, of course they fell in love, got married, and had two more kids together. It's probably the most pragmatic love story you'll ever hear on a podcast. But by all accounts, they had a good marriage, and his daughter Amber said that Phil was an exceptional father. There's a, the fun parent and, you know, the strict parent, and my dad was always a fun parent. 
So that was Phil for more than a decade. To keep from wrecking his knee, he threw himself into fatherhood. And he said that, to a certain extent, it saved him from himself. By the time his kids were a little more grown up, his leg had healed, and he was ready to start climbing again. Not as seriously anymore, usually just as a way to get outside. An easy outdoor weekend with Julia, his sons Carlton and Logan, and his daughter Amber. So this, it, it started as just one of our regular camping trips that we went on. Which brings us to Wyoming in August 2005. Phil and his family are climbing at Vitavu, a stack of smooth granite that juts out of the prevailing Wyoming flatness, like a stack of blocks on the carpet that someone forgot to put away. It's just north of the state line, about two hours from Boulder. Tallest thing for miles. It seemed like a normal Vitavu day or a normal climbing day in the fall beautiful blue skies and you know colors on the earth and all that kind of stuff we went up to um this climb called edwards crack which is for me very easy climb when it started getting cloudy and started getting dicey nobody was upset nobody was fretting really at the time um it's like oh the rain's coming we should take a break and by that time i was nervous because it was already thundering but i remember saying to phil why don't you take the gear and set up the top rope so when we're done with lunch and the storm passes, we can just come back and do that really fast. The storm started rolling in quicker, and I started to try to go. For some reason, I had an urge to get back to my mom. And it all happened. If I go there, I can remember it in, to the smell. I can remember it to the cellular level. You know, they say your life flashes before your eyes. Well, it took forever. That episode took forever. Lightning strikes the Earth about 100 times a second, and a strike can contain 1 billion volts of electricity. But meteorologist Bob Glancy describes it in fairly simple terms. Okay, so lightning is a giant spark. Bob is the warning coordination meteorologist for the National Weather Service in Boulder. He watches storms develop and tells Colorado's climbers and hikers whether it's safe to go into the mountains. If you're going to get a thunderstorm, there's three ingredients necessary. We need moisture, we need something to lift the air, and we need instability. So instability can be viewed as uh, the temperature difference between ground level and higher up in the storm. The process that forms lightning is actually the same process that forms static electricity when you shuffle across a rug in your socks just at a much greater scale. Here's how it works. As thunderclouds build, they get taller. So tall that it's colder at the top than at the bottom. Like a mountain peak is colder at the summit than at base camp. Because heat rises, the temperature difference creates convection currents, or vertical winds. It's the hot air rising and pushing everything else out of the way. So inside the cloud, you've got ice crystals riding these winds and just screaming around, colliding with each other and rubbing against the air. That friction dislodges electrons, and so what you end up with is a bunch of atoms and molecules with missing electrons. That's called a negative ion. Or molecules pick up a missing electron and have an extra to get rid of. That's a positive ion. Positive ions gather at the top of the cloud, while negatively charged ions gather at the base. So what you end up with is one giant battery. It comes down to stacked layers of positive and negative charges, looking to connect any way they can. Dr. Ryan Blumenthal, who studies lightning deaths in South Africa, says that lightning figures out all sorts of ways to get people. You know, lightning is 
very clever. You know, there's positive lightning, negative lightning, upward lightning, downward lightning. In fact, it turns out almost no one is directly struck by a lightning bolt. And if you are, you're dead. End of story. Instead, what usually happens is that lightning strikes something else and hops to a person on its way to the ground. It can, it can almost splash off a pole and get you. It can affect you by means of its blast waves. So lightning can affect you in many different ways. In the U.S., roughly 500 people are struck by lightning each year. Glancy says that 90% of them survive. But you don't often hear about what comes next. The one thing that I fear in nature is lightning. And I'm a meteorologist. Um, if lightning strikes you, your world gets turned upside down. Back at Vitavu, as best as anyone who was there can tell, lightning struck the rock. And it just... And it traveled down, hopping out of the granite and into Phil's body, splashing him with a massive dose of electricity. Hanging off the rock, Phil saw a huge blast of light, heard a sound like a grenade, felt a thousand wasps stinging him from the inside. The blast threw him off the ledge he was on, and after it was done, he hung there on the rope, totally limp. You know, the person will look dead immediately. It's reverse triage. Triage, you go for the most living people first when you're doing resuscitation, whereas in lightning, you go for the most dead person looking first. I, I ran to my mom. And we were all crying out and screaming out for my father to respond, and he wasn't. It felt like 15 minutes, but I think it was really, in reality, two or three. And he said, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. I think that's the first thing I said. And um, <clears throat> Phil lowered himself to the ground, and they all took shelter from the storm. And in that moment, he seemed basically fine. No burns or bruises or smoke coming from his ears. There's a couple of reasons for this. First, when the bolt of lightning struck the rock he was on, it absorbed some of the energy. There's no way to know how much. Second, most of the actual current that did reach him, instead of shocking his vital organs, likely traveled across his skin, a phenomenon known as flashover. Most importantly, the entire strike probably only took just a couple of milliseconds, which sounds fine in theory, but in practice subverts most of our expectations about what lightning will do to a person during a strike. Phil works as an electrician, which, yeah, that's pretty funny, but it also meant that he was familiar with what electrical shocks usually look and feel like. They burn the skin, almost cooking the flesh. But lightning is different. Because of its speed, it doesn't have time to do a lot of physical damage. It's more like hot potato. In fact, lightning is so brief and dissipates so quickly that we don't really understand the damage it does cause. Sometimes it stops the heart, but not always. Most strike victims lose consciousness. Some wake up temporarily blind or paralyzed. The shockwave can rupture eardrums and lodge shrapnel in the body, and it's actually true that your clothes can be blown off of you. Occasionally, strange bruises that look a lot like the pattern lightning makes in the sky will appear on the skin and then go away after a few hours. We don't really know why. The gist of it is that some people die, and some walk away with damage no one really understands. The thing is, is if there's no blood or broken bones, you don't think that it's that serious. He was not necessarily himself, but he was not not himself either. But the next day, I woke up and my body hurt. I mean, if I stood up, I couldn't stand up straight. I was crumpled almost, you know. 
uh, and just, I mean, I felt like my hair hurt, my fingernails. It just was, you know. After the initial strike, every lightning victim is sort of on their own script. But a lot of people try to shake it off. I think a lot of people who get hit don't know they've been hurt. Even if they do know, it can be hard to be taken seriously. A typical doctor, even in a place with a lot of lightning, might only encounter one strike victim in an entire career. And there aren't any medical specialists that focus on lightning. Symptoms are so variable and unpredictable, patients often give off the impression that they're faking it. Many survivors report general fatigue, but can't be more specific. There's sometimes dizziness, hypertension, impotence, and gastrointestinal problems, among other symptoms. There's so many. No, I don't think if anybody had all of them at one time, I think you'd kill yourself immediately because you couldn't tolerate life that way. Often survivors experience a mysterious kind of nerve damage and chronic pain. Sometimes the symptoms themselves are bizarre. The one that caught me first was when I just started realizing I couldn't control my body temperature. He would be like, it's so cold in here. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? And I've, I mean, prior to that, I mean, I was almost immune to the cold. I mean, I was the guy out there that you look at like, oh, idiot, put a coat on, you know? Or vice versa in the winter. We're all like, you know, cold and have like the heater blasting and he's sweating, wearing shorts. <laughs> wearing shorts in the middle of January. Like, it took a long time to realize that something was not firing or sending the right message. And that was, that was probably the most obvious when, you know, for a decade, the man had kept me warm and he no longer could keep me warm. That was, I know it sounds selfish, but it was, it was an obvious. But even more obvious were the mental problems. Phil would try and write something down and be completely stumped trying to spell the word the. It's like all of a sudden, a relatively intelligent person is talking as if he was like a blind, blind monkey slapping at the keyboard. You can't make sense. I wouldn't be able to remember what I just said, just now. Worst of all, however, were the uncontrollable mood swings. And unlike the rest of his symptoms, these directly affected the rest of his family. And it was very slow and very steady um, and ridiculously painful. And I almost didn't want to talk to you because I was like, I don't even know if I want to drudge some of this up. In the weeks and months after the accident, Phil's behavior became more and more erratic. The calm, competent, thoughtful old Phil had to share family time with angry, nervous, short-tempered Phil. Sometimes he would go into what he calls fugue states, a kind of mental dark period in which he was confused, pissed off, and hypersensitive to light and sound. You become a bag of shattered glass, really. Uh, Everything would bother me. The slight, the noises like that, the trinkling in the in the water, or the stepping on stairs, or something like that, would just have me on my teeth on edge. You know, wanting to like, you know, just snap. How would you cope in those moments? I would cope by finding a fetal position in a dark corner and waiting for the world to go away. We were having dinner one night, and as always, me and my brothers, we started to bicker. And next thing I know, he 
literally drops his fork. What is happening right Pushes now? Pushes the plate away from him and stands up. So angry. In such a fit. You fight all the time. Go away. And he I literally couldn't even talk to us. What do you mean you can't talk to me? couldn't even look at us. He couldn't be around us. And I remember it. And I went to my father to see if he was okay. And he said, go away. And that's when I kind of like stood back. I was like, there is something wrong. You know, when we say they have neuropsychological deficits, we're not saying they're just kind of goofy. Before she retired from the University of Illinois, Dr. Marianne Cooper was one of the few medical doctors who even tracked lightning research. We're saying they actually have what some people have called holes in their brains. The, The brain just doesn't operate the way it used to. She says that the physiological changes associated with lightning actually look very similar to those associated with repeated traumatic brain injuries, concussions. One of the things that most people don't realize is that the consistency of the brain inside the skull is sort of like jello. If you think of the brain as an electrical system firing impulses back and forth, the wiring of that system is these thread-like nerve cells called axons. But concussions break those little threads. The wires disconnect. And you've got what's called diffuse axonal injury. Meaning widespread damage to those little electrical threads. Your network's down. It may be because of little rips and tears. It may be even at the the microcellular level where some of the synapses that used to work don't work anymore. Just like a concussion, lightning disrupts these connections. We're not exactly sure how. Other than it kind of makes sense that if you overload an electrical system with electricity, things would start acting funny. Well, if you're talking about computer codes, and I'm not an IT person, but if you're talking about computer codes, uh, it only takes a couple of missed keys to really screw up the program to where it doesn't work anymore. There's a theory that lightning strips the brain's nerves of myelin, a fatty protective sheath that acts like the casing around an electrical wire, insulating it. With the coding gone, the theory goes, the nerves would misfire, which seemed to exactly describe Phil's hypersensitive fugue states. The myelin sheathing, when it's gone, you discharge, you short circuit. And that's what it's like, you short circuit. It's a really interesting idea. But There's absolutely no evidence for that. It's just not what's going on. In fact, when you dive into the specifics of lightning injuries, there's not a lot that we do know. You can badger lightning experts all day without getting answers to some fairly basic questions about why lightning strikes where it does and how it affects the body. It is still a mysterious force of nature. And there's so much to learn. I don't know. I can't tell you. I know it's probably not the magic answer you want to hear, but that's what that's the best we can do, unfortunately. Some of the only hard data we do have comes from an MRI study that Dr. Cooper conducted on survivors of lightning and electrical shock. She gave them tasks to complete while their brains were being scanned. Some surprising things came out. One was that the brain was always on in these lightning and electrical victims, and that sort of explains why they are so exhausted at the end of just two or five or six hours of work. In other words, lightning strike survivors aren't filtering out irrelevant information. The dripping faucet laughter, dishes in the sink, everything comes in tagged high importance. It's tough to make sense of that world. Phil described it as building a mental Jenga tower, and sometimes it would just topple. I would rage, I would yell, and that's really not who I am. I mean, if you could ask people from before, it's just not who I am, but I couldn't help it. From a literary standpoint, it's not lost on me that, you know, Frankenstein was created with lightning. And I say that in hindsight. I never used those words with him when we were struggling. Eventually, Phil and Julia came to the recognition that he was just not the same guy. They divorced in 2012. 
Yeah, it's hard. To, I don't. I don't really want to blame anything. I mean, we came together in such an unconventional way. It might be said that we parted in an unconventional way, but um, I. I don't doubt that lightning changed him. And I just think that we weren't as as suited to each other after that. If the closest we can come to describing the physical injury of lightning is comparing it to traumatic brain injury, the closest we can come to describing the experience of being a strike survivor is comparing it to a case of post-traumatic stress disorder. In Boulder, when the sky turned gray and clumped with storm clouds, Phil would be overcome by anxiety. When the storm rolled in, he would call his whole family to make sure they weren't out in it. Little things could set him off too. The thunderous sound of a rolling garbage can could bring him to tears, for example, or the flash of a strobe light. One time in the grocery store produce section, the lights started blinking, and a thunder sound effect played to signal that the vegetable misters were about to turn on. Phil had a breakdown. You go into these cycles, you drop into the abyss and you pull out of it, and the fear becomes you're not going to pull out of it. The fear becomes that the next time you drop into that hole, you're done. You're gone. Can I ask uh, maybe just an obvious question, but why don't you go somewhere that doesn't have the storms? <laughs> That's a good question a lot of people ask. I live here. I breathe here. I've traveled a lot of places and have dug a lot of places, and there are other places I've lived and have enjoyed. I come back here, it smells right. It feels right. I can't explain it other than um, it's home. One way to think of trauma is as a disruption of our understanding of the world as a basically safe and livable place. The damage is greater when there is no progression of events leading up to an injury when the bomb goes off without warning on an otherwise normal-looking street, or when the lightning bolt misses you and hits the river on the most difficult, most exposed climb of your life, then takes you out on an easy climb with your family. These stories undercut any lesson you try to take from an experience. Moving away wouldn't necessarily make Phil feel any safer. It's not a rational thing in, in many ways. You can sit and say, okay, I'm safe here, but you don't feel safe. You feel... You know, there's no escape. When the cues we use to sense danger let us down, our brains start to see everything as a potential threat. And, especially in the overloaded brain of a lightning victim, there aren't any reserves left to figure out the difference. In some cases, understanding an accident can help disarm trauma but no one really understands lightning. It exists somewhere between the natural and the supernatural. So survivors are left grasping at crumbs of hard data, reading survivor forums, trying to figure out new ways of coping. It took me a while to recognize the signals of a fugue coming on, a lightning malarial state, um, and it took me even longer still to figure out a way to deal with getting around them, to get into a different neural pathway. What was the first thing that you did that seemed to work? Um, Phil's coping mechanisms take place mostly inside his head, so they're a little hard to explain. But basically, he took the idea that lightning had damaged the electrical wiring of his brain, and, thinking like an electrician, decided he could reroute to a different part. You know, you got to remember something you've done that you excelled at. 
tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Since he was in climber mode when he got struck, he tried to go into father mode when he started feeling vulnerable. And it seemed to work. Even if what I'm doing is something that's not parenting, I'm using those pathways. You know, you build these pathways. It sounds simple, but it's like trying to go to your happy place while in the dentist chair. It took practice. But to a large degree, being a father saved him from himself, again. He couldn't be out in a storm, but after a while, he'd be okay sitting it out in his car. And he could function after it passed. The thing was, just as Phil got better, the lightning in Boulder got worse. This has been a really bad year. This year in particular has probably set me back three years, maybe more. There's a theory that global warming is making lightning storms bigger and badder. More heat in the atmosphere means more energy in the weather system, which means bigger thunderclouds more often. 2015 seemed to bear that out. In Boulder, storms were coming over the Rocky Mountains almost every afternoon. To Phil, it seemed like they were coming for him. He was fried. Every day was another five-pound weight put on my back. And, uh, you know, by the time the, the summer rolled in and the concert at Red Rock rolled in, I was primed for a massive meltdown. You know, it was sort of a last-minute deal. My, uh, my, my girlfriend got sick. David Rothstein is one of Phil's close friends. And I just sort of thought, well, maybe Phil will want to go. I said, oh, let me think about it. And I hung up. And I got, went online and I looked at the weather. And the weather indicated it was clearing. It was going to be 10% chance of storms and clearing. And so I called him up and said, yeah, let's go. I hadn't been to a concert at Red Rocks in a long time. In hindsight, he was probably the last guy I should have asked to go to Red Rocks because, you know, that's this outdoor amphitheater and it's exposed. By the time we got there, it was packed. So we had it parked way down at the bottom by the box office. And the first band had already started. And um, we hiked up and got our seats. And I'm looking at these clouds going, wait a minute, this isn't really clearing. I was looking at the hogbacks with another storm front moving in, and they started to collide, and I could feel it. I could feel this tension building. David, even before the lightning, recognized I was nervous. I was getting uncomfortable. He could see that I wasn't watching the stage of the band. I was watching the sky. I mean, we had been talking, and, and he had been saying that he was rattled, that, that it was really starting to get to him. You know, I was like, wow, this is really cool, man. And I look to my left, I think, and, you know, Phil's on the ground. Nothing happened, so I kind of stood back up, and I'm trying to, because the band was good. Anyway, the, the band, about 10, 15 minutes later, another one hits I dropped to the ground again, and I'm really kind of nervous this time. And I mean, cowered down, um, and really, really obviously, uh, you know, he was terrified. I hesitant, very, very hesitantly sit on the benches. Uh, I don't want to stand up. I don't want to. St- everybody else is standing up and dancing and having a good time. I don't want to stand up. 
I'm sitting, but I'm being lifted. I'm being, it's like the hair is, is lifted up and I'm being raised up like a puppet. I literally, against my, all of my will, all of my will to be as heavy and gravity bound as possible, I'm standing up. I'm finding myself standing up. I can't believe I'm standing up. And I'm actually more than standing up. I'm starting to go into releve like a dancer. I'm starting to stand on my damn toes when I can't stop this. I feel like uh, I, I, it's like I'm a marionette. And as that's happening, the biggest lightning, single lightning bolt I've ever seen in my life levels the ground. Try to describe it as the celestial baobab tree from hell because the negative leaders came from as far as my periphery could see all into one big trunk that just shook the ground and when it discharged it was like the strings had been cut and I crumpled I just flopped to the ground and I was start I was shaking and I could just see I'm tunneling in well I'm tunnel visioning anyway I'm starting hyperventilating Within that, a heartbeat or two, there's a woman who's wrapped her arms around me. Yeah, I just saw this man sitting and just shaking, you know, just kind of curled in a ball and shaking. So I, I stepped down one bleacher and, and sat down next to him. I said, hey man, are you okay? <laughs> he said, no, I'm a lightning strike victim. I said, oh wow, you know what, I am too. He was like, oh, you know, where, where were you? And I said, Vitavu. I refuse to put the word coincidence to it that the um, only person I could think of in the universe that could have gotten me to snap into focus for self-rescue was a woman who was, was also struck in Vitavu 10 years after me who was standing right behind me. Chris Norbrayton was struck while guiding a group of middle school girls for the nonprofit Women's Wilderness. She had an experience eerily similar to Phil's, both in circumstance and symptoms. It's almost like all your nerves get totally cooked. Crowded rooms, like sitting under bright lights, the flashing children lights, crying, very raw. How would you respond to the, the uncomfortableness of those situations? Um, mostly avoidance. I kind of shut myself up. But there was one pretty notable difference. And started writing a book. Really? Yeah. Oh. So that was my amazing thing that started happening. <laughs> a, a, a book about lightning and the experience or like a novel? No, a novel. Yeah, I think originally it was like this, oh, this tiny project. Oh, I'm going to write a short story. It's very cathartic. It'll be this way to, to like get some of this energy out. And then I was like, wow, this is pretty much past short story length at this point. And I'm developing another character, huh? Maybe I'll just keep going. And so I, I kept going. Yeah. <laughs> are you, I mean, are you saying, you're sort of implying this, but are you saying that, like, this is, this is a different level of creative output than you had before? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, people have done strange things after lightning, like learned how to play the piano or, ta- you know, just suddenly knew how to play the piano or <laughs> other bizarre things. I don't think that's normative. 
I think that's the exception. But there are some strange stories out there about creative development after lightning. And this just kind of like opened the doors for me. I was like, all right, I'll take it. It's stories like this that fuel the more woo-woo conversations about lightning. But a lot of them leave out some important details. The piano guy, for example, didn't actually wake up knowing how to play. He dedicated himself to learning after his strike. He wrote the lightning sonata 10 years later. Chris studied writing in college, and the sensory overload following the strike provided the isolation she needed to stick with a project. So lightning isn't some magic creative spark from the sky, but perhaps it does give some people the chance to reevaluate their priorities. More importantly, Chris's novel has given her something to show for her injury, a story to tell herself that makes sense. For me, I take it like I get to be a writer. I'm a writer now. It's what I've always wanted to do. And I've never had the, the will or the guts or the ideas to do it. And for me, like that's enough meaning. I wouldn't trade that. I would not go back and like redo, you know, hand my manuscript in and be like, okay, here, you can have this manuscript back and I'll undo the lightning. Never. I would not do it for a lot of money. But as much as lightning has given Chris, it's taken from Phil. One way to see his recovery is as a process of trying to figure out why. You know, it's a way to give back to another strike survivor. I struggled, I suffered, I lost my marriage um, by not being able to comprehend and to understand about what was happening and how to cope with it. Try this. Think of this. Here's something that worked for me. I think that um, Chris may need that. In other words, if lightning is just random connections between positive and negative charges, then there's been no point to feel suffering. But at Red Rocks that night, you had one person whose life had been positively changed by lightning, and one whose experience had been incredibly negative. And then they connected for that one powerful moment that snapped Phil out of his panic. Maybe that was his chance to equalize. You, you ref- refuse to use the word coincidence yeah. with uh, Chris finding you. Right. And uh, what word do you use? Okay, first off, it's not unusual that people in this area would go to the similar, have similar musical tastes and go to a concert that was going to be a cool concert. Not unusual. Not unusual that in that crowd there might be a whole lot of people who climb. Maybe not unusual there could be a couple of lightning st- in Colorado, a couple of people have been struck by lightning. Okay, I can get all those things. But to be struck on virtually the same rock formation in the same climbing area and to be standing back to, you know, back to front, that's just too hard for me to say, oh, well, that's just random coincidence. What word do I use? Thank you. Grateful. I can't put a concept word to it. Try to understand is all you can do and work with where you're at. A few weeks after the concert at Red Rocks, Phil was working at a job site and the storm rolled in. He dropped his tools and ran to his car. In the video he took, it's pretty clear where he's at, which means he's not completely lost. I just, I just had a meltdown. I don't drink booze. I don't do drugs, except coffee. I've been through <clears throat> 13 surgeries, dealt with a lot of pain. 
I am not a pain pill junkie. I'm not a lost soul. I am a productive individual when I'm together. But I'm not together right now. It's hard to explain what it feels like to be a constant fucking target. It's not like people have a fear of heights, which you can deal with, if nothing else, by staying away from them. Being afraid of the sky, where are you going to go? story was produced by me and Robbie Carver with original music and sound design by Robbie. Thanks to Ashlyn Hatch, Alex Ward, Emma Jacobs, Jonathan Hirsch, Liz Mack, Jonah Ogles, and especially Kyle Anderson, who let us stay at his house in Denver, play with his dogs while we waited for Phil to make his way home from Montana during a snowstorm. Thanks to the entire Broskovic family for talking with us. And to Phil for driving all day through that snowstorm and then sitting through almost four hours of questions before we had to fly home. This story was inspired by an article on lightning strike survivors by Ferris Jaber that Outside published in 2014. This season of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More at Sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. So then what, what's your take on like these stories you hear about people who get struck by lightning and then can suddenly play the piano? I think that's the most famous one. <laughs> okay. You know, there are a few stories out there uh, about people who have gained uh, tremendous talents, but Standing out in the middle of a thunderstorm to get hit by lightning to gain new skills is not something I would recommend.